Hey everybody, this is Bobby Rock, and you are listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalheads, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another week of Focus on Metal. Holy crap, can you believe it? We are within the final months of 2018. Been a great year for metal so far on the on the album front, on the show front, and uh, also on the book front. And that is where we are focusing our energy primarily this week as we talk with Bobby Rock. And Bobby just put out a book a few weeks ago called The Boy Is Gonna Rock, A Drummer's Journey from Houston to Hollywood in Search of Hair Metal Heaven. And uh, a lot of you guys might remember that Bobby is uh, formerly the drummer from uh, the Vinnie Vincent Invasion. Also spent a little bit of time with some other bands out there on tour, notably uh, Nelson. And he has now written his uh, his story and all the uh, all the interesting details of life in the Invasion and life on the '80s hair metal scene. And if after you uh, hear Richie's chat with Bobby and you decide you want to pick up your own copy of The Boy Is Gonna Rock, you can head up to bobbyrock.com and he's got the book up there. He's got some bundles up there as well. You know, get a get an autographed photograph along with the book, you know, some other things that he's got up there. And I should note that... Uh, Every copy of that book you order off of bobbyrock.com is actually autographed as well. And also this week, we'll be running a talk that Richie had with a couple of guys in the Guess Who. Uh, the Guess Who, you know, tons, tons and tons of hits in the uh, in the 70s and, and early 80s. And they've come back together again, released a brand new album, their first one since 1995. It's entitled The Future Is What It Used To Be. And this week, Richie's sitting down with the rhythm section of the Guess Who, uh, original drummer Gary Peterson, as well as uh, their new bass player, Rudy Sarzo. So a few weeks ago, Richie was able to call in and have a very, very quick chat with uh, with Rudy and Gary. And I think what happened is that uh, they were running a little bit late, time got crunched, and so his uh, normal 20, 25-minute slot got down to about 10 minutes but we'll be running that chat as well for those of you interested in some of the the classic stuff that we often delve into here on Focus on Metal. But uh, because Valeria asked so nice a few weeks ago, and I did promise we would do this the first week of November, we're going to kick it off with Richie's chat that he had with Bobby Rock. Hey, Bobby, it's Richie here for the interview. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. So where are you based now? Los Angeles. Oh, you're L.A. I'm... Um, yeah. I'm just uh, just outside of Boston. Okay. Yeah, I'm about a su- suburb over there. Yeah, I'm a, I'm about forty minutes from the Worcester Centrum. Oh yeah. <laughs> Which I, is, I, you know I know that place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I read the book. Like <laughs> 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 well, I got a I got a quick story for you before we get into the interview. Sure. Um, sure. First concert I ever saw in 1988 was uh, Bon Jovi's New Jersey tour. It was the opening night of the tour, and Lita Ford was the opener. So the first act I ever saw in a rock concert was Lita. And then wow. last year, you played a gig in the Tupelo Music Hall in uh, Londonderry, New Hampshire. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I brought my eight-year-old son to the concert, and his first concert was Lita Ford. Get out of here, man. Yeah. And, um, Are you serious? Yeah. For, he was sitting on my lap, and he was so psyched, four songs into the set, he fell asleep. <laughs> and um, he had the headphones on, right? The noise-canceling headphones. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed Lita the week before the concert, so she knew he was coming. And as I stayed for the whole concert, he was asleep on my lap. I said, I'm not moving, right? So he, he missed your drum solo, everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> and he slept, um, he slept through the whole thing. <laughs> wow. And as I was carrying him out, I, Lita finished the concert and she looked over. And I think she realized that I, who I was because I had my son. And the, the guy who, the security guy was telling me to go up. And I couldn't go up. He was fast asleep. <laughs> I was like, oh, God, right, I, have to, right. I have to go home. So that was a bit of a bummer. But it's weird that my <laughs> first gig was Lita and his first gig was Lita Ford. That's crazy, man. What are the odds, you know? Yeah, well, uh, the minute I heard she was playing up near me, I said, oh, I'm definitely going to go because I've, I'd never seen you play either. Hmm. Because you obviously you just told me you'd never played in Ireland. Right. Yeah, so I don't know how much of the UK you did either. Did you do the UK with Nelson? Um, you know, if, if I, you know, I, I want to say no. If if we did, it would have been maybe like you know the, the usual suspects, you know, London and this kind of thing. But I, but I, I don't, uh, I don't recall doing it with Nelson. Okay, okay. Yeah, you, you, you catch shows there sometimes too, right? Hmm. You might go there. You may catch some shows there. Um. Yeah. So, so let's get into it, Bobby. Um, sure. I got the book, The Boy's Gonna Rock. I'm sure you've done a lot of interviews so far on it. Um, when did you get the idea of actually writing the book? Like, has this been something brewing for a long time? It kind of has. It, it, I guess it all started with uh, a simple blog post in October of 2015. And... Uh, you know, I, I've been I've been interested in writing and, and working on the craft for quite a few years now. I've written other books and this kind of thing, and I've had a blog since I think 2007, where I you know write about a lot of different things. And so every year I do like a sort of like a writers retreat thing with a childhood friend, and we meet somewhere around the world. This year, we, that particular year, we were in Spain, and I said, you know, I, I'm gonna I don't know why it hit me. I guess because it was the 30 year anniversary of my audition with the invasion. I said, I'm going to just write about that experience and throw it out there on the blog, see if people groove on it. Because it was kind of an interesting story about how I had this long shot opportunity to audition and I drove out there in a the van and, you know, it wind up getting the gig. So <clears throat> did that blog post and it had quite a reaction from people. They were really interested in the story. They were interested in the invasion, more so than I even thought all these years later. And I said, okay, well, shit, I'll do, I'll do another one. I'll, I'll write about the making of the first record, which was another arduous adventure, you know? Mm-hmm. And again, a uh, big reaction and all that. So at that point, I, I, I knew, I said, you know, there's probably, uh, there's probably a book in here, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. just because from a, from a writer's perspective or a reader's perspective, I just felt like there was, uh, a, a, it, it was an interesting, the whole, that whole experience, that whole you know time, that whole era of the music industry, uh, you know, uh, the, the unique characters between Zenny and Dana and Mark Slaughter and everybody's involved. 
so at that point, I knew I, I needed to get around to it. So it took a couple of years to sit down and actually uh, put it on the priority list. But when I did, I was able to blaze through a first draft pretty quick. And, and of course, that all led up to, you know, Vinny coincidentally coming back into the scene as well, you know? Yeah. Were you someone, Bobby, that kept diaries back then that you could refer to? Well, actually, uh, the I, I really didn't start journaling or keeping diaries until uh, Nelson era. Uh, but you know, I just I just had this crazy accurate memory, almost with a photographic recall. Um, the longer go, the longer ago that something was, the more accurately I could re- uh, you know, pull it up in the memory banks. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because I you know not doing drugs and alcohol. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I can. It's hard to explain. Like I, I have like a, an almost photographic recollection of each month of every year. I mean, not like Rain Man kind of shit. Where I can tell you, okay, on November twenty third, nineteen eighty five, I was doing such and such. Uh, but uh, close, I can tell you, like you know, any given month on any given year, pretty much throughout the eighties and most of the nineties, like I can tell you exactly where, where I was and what was going on. So a lot of the, all the, the DVI stuff. I had a very, very sharp recollection in that three-year period of everything that went, that happened, when it went down, all those things, and of course that came in that came in handy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> writing a memoir about everything. Yeah, did, did you did you write the book in uh, in chronological order, or or did you just write certain passages depending on what you remembered? You know, uh, pretty much chronological order is what I wound up doing. Uh, although, you know, I, I, I used those initial blog posts. I, I, I tweaked them only slightly, but so I knew I kind of had like the audition thing and the first record. So when I, when I went back to do the book, I, I kind of circled back around and, and, and created some backstory about how I got interested in, like the first chapter is all about getting interested in drumming and music and sort of like my journey as a drummer that led me to the audition, which happens in chapter two. Mm-hmm. And then from that point, I try to keep it chronological. Um, and I just, just kind of, you know, kind of kept that, that, uh, you know, that, that path of the of storytelling from that point forward, you know? Yeah. Was there anyone other than yourself that you kept referring to maybe giving them phone calls saying, I, I, I want to put this in. Did it actually happen like this? You want to get it as accurate as you can, or did you just rely on doing it all yourself? You know, I mean, on the few occasions where I wanted to go, now, wait a second, was it because of this or was it because of that? I would. Like, I consulted Mark Slaughter about a couple things to see what his take was on it. But man, it's just, I just remember, man. And and, and it's, I haven't had much below, I mean, I haven't had anybody really step forward and say, no, 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 that wasn't, that didn't happen or that wasn't, you know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's it, it, it just kind of, it, I, I just remember things. The tricky part is uh, perceptions, you know, like like Mark Slaughter, for example, or Dana Strum might have had a different perception on why, you know, Vinny did a particular thing or or, that that kind of stuff. So that's the subjective part of the of the storyline. And and of course, as you know, when you're when you're when you're writing a memoir, you know, this is through my filter, through my recollection, through what I knew about things. And and, you're getting a particular bias you're getting a particular perspective of course you know 
so some of that kind of stuff I think is going to will probably change from from person to person, you know. But as far as the unfolding of the event, I mean, I I, I found it an old tour itinerary. I I I was pretty clear about what what dates. You know, like what our first show was, what our fifth show was. I was remembering this kind of shit. And I happened to run across our actual tour itinerary, like the handwritten, this is before computers, you know, so the yeah. handwritten you know, itinerary that we had. And man, that shit was like dead on, exactly as I recall, man. You know, the, you know Lansing, Michigan, Saginaw, Michigan, two nights at Joe Luce Arena for shows three and four. I mean, boom, boom. I, I just remembered it all. So, I would get some validation like that from time to time, and uh, but in general, the 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 recollection of the events and how it all went down, I think it just kind of was what it was, you know. Yeah. Now, you said there that you you talked to Mark a little bit. What what was his initial reaction when you mentioned that you were doing a book? He was cool. I I, he, I think he was uh, he was all good with it, and I think. You know, especially after, uh, you know, I, I don't, he didn't come out and say this, to say it in this way, but I think after Vinny's initial appearance, when he did that Eddie Trunk interview and he did that Kiss Expo and all that, mm-hmm. and of course everybody heard some of the things he had to say and, and all of that, I mean, you know, none of us had a recollection of Vinny feeling that way about Mark, you know? Yeah. So... In my opinion, I think Mark was like, you know, Mark didn't make a big fuss about it. I don't think it, it bothered him that much uh, all these years later. It, it, I think it mystified him that, you know, Vinny would, would have this level of uh, uh, these kind of feelings all these years later. Um, but I, 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 you know, I think for Mark's sake, he's like, hey, you know what? Uh, Bobby has a pretty accurate account of what went down. So I, I think from that standpoint, just him knowing that the truth would be at the quote unquote truth would be out there, you know, the, uh, about you know how how smoothly it really went throughout the making of the second record and and all of that. Um, but he, he, you know, he didn't. Uh, I, I think he was he, he's been very very supportive of the thing all along. You know. Yeah. Um, what about Dana? Have you heard anything from Dana? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I did I did a slaughter. I, I, I did a I, I subbed for uh, uh, Zoltan on a on a, a slaughter gig. I mean, like you know, two months before the book came out, and uh, so and, and of course I, I you know, I, I'm in touch with those guys regularly throughout the year. I, I do I did a few shows with Mark when he was doing some of the solo stuff. Mm-hmm. I played with Slaughter the band, you know, several times, you know, on several occasions through the years, as you probably know, and. And, and I talked to Dana regularly as well. So Dana was tricky. That was a tricky situation for me. And I talked to him about it uh, at, at, at the airport after that slaughter. So I said, bro, you know, I'm doing this memoir. You know, my style is not to throw anybody under the bus or to create this like sensationalized, you know, uh, over the top, uh, uh, ridiculous type of a thing. Uh, that, that's not my intention here. I just want to tell the story. I go, and you know, there was some crazy shit that went down back then. And, and, and what I was, what I was referring to was, you know, this, uh, you know, Dana was a fucking character, man. And, and there were a lot of things about it that was kind of like the prototypical rock and roll guy, particularly in the way that he handled his personal life with the revolving door of women and this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and it was it, the only, and look at man, you know, as I say in the, in the, preface of the book the very first thing i talked about was like you know 
I really believe that, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You know, that, that concept when you're in a rock band, you know, when, when you join a band, it's kind of understood that you're going to be privy to things that the public doesn't see. You're going to, you're going to see things behind the scenes and, 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 and it's nobody's business, you know? And, uh, so I, I, yeah, almost like a priest, you know, you take that, 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 what is it, the, the oath of confidentiality or whatever, you know, that you're yeah. talking to talk. And, uh, you know, however, you know, so much of, of the invasion's laundry has been aired publicly and all that, that I, I felt like, uh, it, it was okay at that point to, to kind of go in and tell the story. But, Regarding Dana's thing, uh, there, there was an important aspect of the story uh, to kind of paint the full. Because Dana is a very, you know, especially back then, he was a very complex character. You know, he had a almost a managerial role in the band, unspoken kind of like you know with how he handled things. So he, so on the one hand, he would be a co-producer and he he ran the show in a lot of areas, and then he would then uh, at the same time, you know, he he had this whole sort of second life happening. With, with his uh, uh, philandering, if you will, you know? And so I thought I needed to sort of allude to that so people could get to understand the full complexity of his character and how that might affect, you know, Vinny's view of him, for instance, you know? So it's complex, you know? And, and so I, I basically alluded to, I said, bro, I, I, you know, I had to, uh, this is when we were finishing up the final draft. I could have changed something if I had to, you know? And he, I think Dane is pretty unaffected, but I don't think he, cares much you know what i mean like mm. like uh what would he what do you talk what, what, what did you say I, I don't think he really gives a shit honestly you know yeah and uh so we, we talked about it. i let him know that you know i was gonna i was gonna you know uh uh be fairly transparent about my my recollections about things that happened and as you saw in the book i mean it is a, a throw somebody under the bus style you know it's just me saying the observations about what we saw and some of the things that happened and and I, but I, try, I had to tread those waters. Uh, the, 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 those are the trickiest waters to tread, is what I'm trying to say. You know. Yeah, Bobby. What What do you think is the the biggest misconception out there about the invasion that you really wanted to address in this book? The biggest misconception. Yeah, the one thing wow. that you've heard over the years from loads of different people, and you're like, actually, no, that's not what happened. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's a good question because I think it depends on. Um, I think it depends on what. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. Probably the first thing that comes to mind is just I think about Vinny himself. I think the perception was that he was this tyrannical, you know, type of a uh, you know, uh, uh, ruler type guy uh, who was a prick and who put us through hell and, and these kind of things and 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 these stories. There's a lot of different ways, reasons that these things were perpetuated, and uh, and then with Vinny disappearing, he didn't have a chance to say his side of the story or to chime in on that. He just vanished. And I think a lot of these perceptions were able to sort of marinate through the years, and so I think that was that, that, that's that's you know, the way Vinny again. Vinny is a very very complicated character. And there were a lot of things that went down that on the surface you go, damn, why would he do that? Or why did he do that? Oh, he's an asshole for making you do the drums three times on the record. And, oh, yeah, it's easy for someone to kind of fall into that way of perceiving things. Um, but, you know, there was always a reason behind what he did, even if even if it uh, was, in my opinion, misguided at times or there was mis, you know, 
misconceptions or wh- whatever you want to say about it. There was still a reason. I don't think he did anything just for the sake of trying to be an asshole, you know. So that that that's probably the biggest one I would say right there. Yeah. Did Did you ever think you were friends with Vinny, or was it just friendly? I did. I did. I mean, particularly through through the first tour, you know, we had we had some bonding moments, uh, you know, being on the road all those months, and. Uh, you know, we, we spent two or three Thanksgivings together, and, and we we would uh, we, we could we could talk about personal things and shit that was going on in my life. Yeah, he, he almost had like a, a big brother type of a rapport with me on certain things because it was really my first rodeo as far as first major tour with a major act, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then he had just been through you know with Kiss a few years prior and all that. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I would I would characterize it as that. Yeah, it just comes across in the book that you're definitely friends with Mark. And with Dana, I'm not sure. This is just my perception. And with Vinny, sure, sure. And with Vinny I wasn't sure either. Mm-hmm. Well, right, and that, that's fair. I mean, because with Mark, that, that's a whole different level of friendship. We were really great friends. We had like a brother bond. We had the two young guys. We were rooming together. We had So we were around each other a lot more. We were hanging a lot more. Um, and so especially, uh, but that, that's a good observation because I think, I think my, my friendship with Dana, it, 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 there was a, there was a mentorship going on with Dana as well, but his thing was, especially then just, you know, he, he was always in his head within a million different places, you know? And so I think I was definitely closest with Mark and then me, Mark and Dana, the three of us would be the, the next, that'd be the next line of hanging. And, but yeah, I guess from a, from a, a hanging out perspective, sure. I don't know that Vinny was was the your first call to make if you were going to just go hang out or something. As I mentioned, Vinny, like me and Vinny, our thing was like pancakes. You know, that was our that was our our common ground. You know, going and having some breakfast and, and powwowing and this kind of thing. Yeah, uh, but you know, he was in a different place in his life too. Yeah, you know, than the rest of us. You know, married with kids and he had his, you know that whole type of thing. So. As a friendship, certainly it was limited. Yeah. Now, the Dana relationship and the, with the first three guys is, I'm reading the book and I'm like, wow, it's complicated. Now, did he put himself in that role or did someone ask yes. him to do it? Because he seemed to be, you said he was putting out fires, he was always on the phone. And I'm thinking, did some did George ask him to do that or did he do it himself? He did it himself, man, and that speaks to just kind of how he is. Like, to know Dana is just to know that about him. He's someone who is actively, you know, like proactively involved on the front lines with pretty much anything he, he's involved with. You know, in other words, I, I don't I don't think, it, it, it's just kind of like who he is and what he does and <laughs> it's kind of hard to explain, but that was, I mean, from the very beginning, man, I, I think, first of all, by having, by him being in a, in a, in a co-producer role with Vinny, that, that put a certain amount of responsibility on his back as far as, you know, uh, studio scheduling and, 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 and organizing the sessions and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, that, that level of, of admin with regard to getting the record done. 
once that was established and, and cause you know, he had to, like, he, he would essentially cover all the details or everything. And then he would show up and, and then he played his role as a co-producer, mainly creatively, but all the behind the scenes stuff and the, the numbers and dealing with the record company and all that, that was all Dana. So I just think from there, once, once he kind of entrenched himself into the band business and working on the record, it was, it, 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 it just became, you know, second nature for him or a very natural role for him to, be the, be the you know, on the front lines of organizing, you know, talking to a photographer who's going to organize a photo session, for example, or someone who's coming down to do an interview or whatever it was. Dana kind of became the buffer, and I think he did it because you know he he's I don't want to say he's a control freak. But I think he he because he's so meticulous and he's so detail oriented, more so than most people you would meet, even who who actually are in the management role. I don't think he trusted the process to anybody else. He thought he had to, he felt more comfortable uh, spearheading all of those kind of things. Okay. And just from there, you know, from that, you know, rehearsals and dealing with press and dealing, you know, I mean, he's got a really big personality, really strong personality. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, uh, and, and most importantly, I, I think he recognized the, the volatility that there could be with Vinny sometimes in certain situations with 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 press or with whoever else, so I think he felt like he needed to sort of do damage control, if you will, mm. you know. And well, and, and uh, yeah, yeah. Was he open to um, input from any of you guys at all, or did he just think he knew what was best and went with it? Uh, Dana, you're talking about? Yes. Uh, yeah. I... <laughs> I, I think he probably, I think he probably had a pretty, pretty good, you know, I don't know that he was seeking input from a couple of 22 year old kids necessarily. And I don't, I don't think he felt like, uh, Vinny was enough of a big picture thinker, if you will, on certain things. So, I, I think it's 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 the former of what you said. I think he probably felt like, but he, he would always be. Like, I remember sitting down with him saying, "Dana, why are you doing this?" And, and then I would tell him, and then he'd give me a, a a very intelligent response as to why my idea wouldn't work. And he was usually right, <laughs> you know. So, you no, know, a very intelligent guy, man. And and uh, I'm not saying he was all all the decisions were perfect or things were handled because you know it was, it was this was the, the age of the the you know mega hype. And there were certain things in retrospect that I think we went over the top with, you know, uh, to our disadvantage, if you will. Yeah. And a lot of these were Dana's ideas and things that he felt like we needed to do and areas he would push us. And it just, everything was always just on 10. And, and, and those were also just the, you know, that fucking P.T. Barnum, you know, the ringleader vibe, you know, the circus, the, you know, the, the carnival barker type. I mean, that was like the era. That, that kind of thing, you know, was was what was sort of in vogue back then. So I can't fault him for that. But it was, you know, what I'm saying it was. Uh, there, there are things in retrospect that you know you could. It's easy to say, man, we probably should have scaled back on that. We probably shouldn't have done that. Uh, but in the moment, I think he had a, a direction and a vision. And of course, remember, our manager was New York based. Yeah. So he was always one step removed from the insanity. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Now. The the one thing in the book that stands out to me is um, when you sat down with Vinny 
and you, you, I think it's, you put it down as your second biggest mistake you made when all systems go. And I, yeah. I, remember, I remember reading during the book, uh, you said that you and Mark understood your roles completely. And then further down the line, you decided to sit down with Vinny and talk to him about his attitude to the media and his soloing and all that. And I'm thinking, is this the same guy that said like two chapters beforehand that he understood his role? And you must have known right after you did that, that you'd fucked up. Oh, shit. Yes. Yes, I did. And, you know, the, the here, here's the thing. We knew our roles. I knew what it was. And so uh, when, when, when I made that comment to him about his soloing, uh, 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 wait, wait, now, or, or, let's see, was it the one where I, uh, where, where, where I sat him down poolside and, and once we were out on the road? Yeah. Yeah, okay, that was, okay so, so the, the, the prior incident to that was when we were working on the record. Mm-hmm. And, and, and before Vinny started recording solos for the second record, uh, I don't know. I don't know. You know how I. Uh, this, I rec- this is the first time I really crossed the line when I when I told him what everyone else was thinking, but no one outside of you know a few people like our manager and and maybe somebody at the label or something like that. If that they told him, look at these solos that are just over the top, ninety miles an hour, start to finish, and and you know we go on the road, solos, you're playing live, ninety miles an hour, start to finish. Very few people have told him about, you know, that, that thing, that barrage of notes, concepts and all that, and how it was a detriment. But yet, you know, from our perspective, we were hearing it all the time. We were observing it going down and all that. So I'd initially made a, an ill-advised comment about that to him before he started doing the solo and immediately regretted it. I guess I realized I crossed the line. So, and, and of course, we were able to get past it, and I thought he played really well on All Systems Go and, and all of that. Um, so yes, I, that, that is true. I, I, I knew my place and I, I, you know, experienced what it was like to cross the boundaries and all that. The thing about sitting him down or, or having like that conversation with him once we hit the road was that that was almost like a sort of like, that was more like an altruistic, uh, moment, you know, like, Hey, you know what, man? No, what, you know, he, he thinks we're all trying to bail on him. He thinks the band just pulled a mutiny. But that's not really true, man. You know, yeah, there's some other issues. Yes, we talked to other managers about some of these issues and all that. But man, we we you know we, we uh, he, he has this wrong. He has he misinterpreted what we what we're what we're coming from here. So let me sit, let me try to enlighten him. I mean, so <laughs> that's why I think I said like you know the naive kid from Texas type thing. You know, because I, I felt like if I just leveled with him and cut all the bullshit and sat down and said, look. Okay, Yes, it's true. We have had these concerns, just as so many others have. And yes, it's true. We have had conversations with some of these prospective managers about some of these issues. However, we were, we, you know, it, it was never some master plan to, you know, kick you out of your band. How can we do this? Is your band? We're, we're your bandmates. How, you know? So I, I just felt like, by, you know, because at that point it was bad. Man. There was no, I didn't think the thing was going to rectify itself. We're on the road. We had all these shows to do. I just felt like it would it would help to sit down and have the conversation with him, and of course, <laughs> that I mean, in retrospect, it was a fucking disaster. It was <laughs> not the right thing to do because it, even even for Mark and Dana, it was not fair to Mark and Dana because I was risking the entire road dynamic. I didn't realize at the time, but that, and that, that's exactly what happened. I mean, they paid for it also because once we had that conversation, boom, 
that was it. There was no going back. He had made up his mind that we you know, betrayed him or whatever. And we all paid for it for the remainder of uh, that tour there, you know? Yeah. Now, <laughs> why didn't the four of you sit in, sit down in a room at any stage? Now, maybe you did, and it's not in the book. And, and like, iron out all your problems, just talk as, as four bandmates. That, I mean, I know that seems logical, but it just, it, it, how could I explain? It, it just, it just was, um, well, look, it, 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 it goes to show you just for, for me, even me having a heart to heart with Vinny, you see what happened. Mm. So I think we, we, we all understood there was a very sensitive dynamic in, in dealing with Vinny or talking with Vinny. And, and uh, so it, it, it just, you know, it, because it, for us to sit down in the room and, and talk, I mean, I mean, the exact conversation that we would have had had the four of us sat down together was pretty much exactly the conversation that I had with them one-on-one. So it, 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 if anything, it would have been worse. Probably, he probably would have felt like we were all, you know, uh, uh, you know, bombarding him with, with with these issues or something. So I, I hear what you're saying. Like you would think that, you know, hey, why don't you guys sit down and work it out? But it just, it just, the, the dynamic of the band, the way Vinny perceived things, it, it just it, that was never possible, and it certainly was never possible once it went south. Like once that conversation happened, and. and uh, because then it was, you know, separation of church and state. You know, it was, you know, then he was going to the to the, to the case to, to, uh, uh, separate from us, and he was leaving separate. You know, we, we were just, we were functioning in two parallel universes out there just trying to get through the tour, you know. And it was, just, so we were all kind of in survival mode at that point, and there was no going back. It, was, it just wasn't, uh, that that kind of dialogue would not have been possible, and that's all I could really say, you know. Yeah, and no, I'm, I'm reading the, in the book when I get near when you you know when you choose the manager Nigel. Yes. And I, and when I started reading about that, I went, "This is not going to end well." I just have a feeling about this, and um, <laughs> and it didn't end very well for you guys because you you got screwed on checks and everything. It was just it just went downhill really fast when he was hired. Yes. Yeah, it really did. That that was it was an unfortunate thing. Um, that guy was very bright, man. There's no question. He, 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 I mean, you know, the, the, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten different managers that we spoke with, that, that was quite an education, being able to sit in a room with some of the most brilliant minds in, in rock and roll, you know, Shep Gordon, Bill O'Coin, and all these guys that have had all this success and, and uh, and, and so to sort of, you know, kind of compare the styles, how they would perceive our issues and what they would propose to do, you know, all these things was, was, was really educational. And then this Nigel guy comes in like, damn, this guy, he really had, uh, as I mentioned, a very, very unique take on things. Uh, and, and I thought he, he we probably had the best chance with him at sort of a reinvention and, and, and sort of how we would navigate some of the quote unquote, you know, Venny difficulties. Uh, the only thing we didn't recognize is that he was really coming on board to manage Venny and didn't really care too much about <laughs> the rest of the band. Yeah. So it became, you know, problematic, let's say. <laughs> yeah. Did it, did it ever come up, Bobby, that, uh, you'd ask Dana to manage the band? You know, um, uh, 
it, it, it's a good question. It, it didn't because back then the big thing about having a manager was not so much about uh, the 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 everyday inner workings of keeping the, the the machine running smoothly because Dana clearly had a good knack for that. The big thing, especially back then, probably still to this day on some level, but especially back then, was it was all about clout. You know, uh, it's about finding the right manager who could, you know, bring you on that big tour, mm-hmm. uh, who could strong arm, you know, radio or MTV or, you know, the, you know like that. You wanted the power player. That was what it was all about back then, having somebody who could influence things. In, 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 a, in a big way like that. And so that, 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 that's really what it was about. You know, uh, that, that's the main thing we were looking for, I think, in a manager back then, knowing that Dana would always probably, he could not be involved, you know, because <laughs> in the day-to-day. Yeah. Now, just got a couple of general questions, Bobby, before, before I leave you go. Um, sure. You, you've been sober now for a long time, but back then it was the hedonism was unbelievable like you hear all the drink and the drugs and all that was that difficult on some level for you to be around people that were doing drugs and drinking because like they change the way they behave around you when they're on that and here you are like stone cold sober right you know it, it, just, it was just never a factor for me you know um, and as I look back on the specific affiliations that I had through the years, of course, with the invasion and then the Nelson brothers and even a lot of the other ones. I, I just, I, I never found myself in, in a situation where that was like constantly going on around me. Even with the invasion, and nobody really, you know, uh, I mean, Mark and Vinny, I don't think I ever saw even drink. Uh, and Dana would, would drink on uh, occasion. Uh, but like, nobody was smoking weed, nobody was doing any other kind of drugs. They just, you know, and then the, if the crew guys were doing it, they were doing it away from us, or, and you know, and on their own time or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying I was completely. I never saw it at all. I mean, obviously, you're you're out on the road, and there's there's, there's things happening here and there. But I guess it wasn't like, you know, uh, in my face all the time. Number one, number two, you know, even at that point, man. I mean, I shit, I probably had close to 10 years of sobriety even at that point so i had been sort of you know indoctrinated into the ways of sober living if you will to where i I just i just had my routine i didn't really have any uh desire or temptations or oh wow you know these guys are drinking around me and i feel like i want to have a drink i I just i i had i had done my due diligence going to this you know 12-step program for all throughout high school and all that and so i had a pretty pretty good grasp on uh, my sobriety and where I was at. So I didn't, I, that, that was never, for whatever reason, it was never a factor for me. Yeah. And one of the other things you mentioned in the book is um, you're playing drums and next thing there's a, it was a bottle of Jack Daniels was uh, thrown at you. And, <laughs> and I'm wondering, um, what are the other things that have been thrown at you on stage? Because I've gotten stories from roadies about darts thrown on stage and knives and Carlos Cavazo told me someone in Mexico or Colombia let a monkey on stage when he was playing. What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Jesus, man. <laughs> you know, I, I've been lucky. Uh, I've been lucky. And, and, and that was, uh, you know, at, at, on, during the Iron Maiden tour when we were still our full on, you know, first album pink amps, pink this, pink that, you know, and I don't think the Maiden crowd took too kindly to it. 
largely we always seemed to win them over by the end of the set. But that was uh, that was a that was a night in Seattle when uh, yeah somebody just literally hurled a, a whiskey bottle up at uh, on the stage. I've been pretty lucky. The only other thing that was quote unquote hurled at me was during the Nelson tour. You know, there's always this thing where bands will play prank. The headliner will play a prank on the opening act on like the last night of the tour. That's kind of the traditional thing that happens. Mm-hmm. So we were touring with Cinderella and the last night of the tour with them having observed, observed me as a, uh, you know, vegan, you know, with, a, with my regimen of fruits and vegetables and this kind of thing. During my drum solo, they had arranged to have like this ungodly amounts of like, you know, those deli tray fruits and vegetables how you see backstage. Yeah. They somehow got like a shitload of those, uh, and, and, and they, they were suspended over the drum kit in some kind of a net. I don't know how they did it, when they did it, from the lighting <laughs> rig or whatever. I was there. I'm doing a drum solo on the last night of our tour with them. And all of a sudden, it just starts raining fucking broccoli and cauliflower and celery, you know? <laughs> so, that, that, was about, that was about the only other occasion I think it was something really, uh, you know, was hurled my, in my, my direction, so to speak, you know? Yeah, I'll take that over a whiskey bottle, though. That's for sure. Right, definitely. Now, <laughs> one one question I ask all the drummers, and I've asked a lot of sure. them. I've gotten different answers. What's the worst drum-related injury you've ever had? Mm. The worst drum-related injury I ever had. Uh, you know, actually, I've been very fortunate in that, man. Uh, I I, j- I haven't had like. I haven't had an injury that came from drumming, like, you know, this carpal tunnel stuff or, or guys will fuck up the rotator cuff or do this kind of thing that from drumming. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because I'm, I've always trained and always lift weights and done these other things that help keep the body in condition. So I, I haven't had that. However, I have had a couple weight training related injuries that I had to navigate and still go play a show and still play drums. And so for that, it was just a, uh, it was, it was a strained shoulder muscle that I got from doing, uh, heavy bench press. And then I had to go play a very important show. It was one of the first shows I ever played with Nelson actually. And so that was tough. I went to like an acupuncture. I was just desperate. I could hardly pick my, lift my arm up over my head. So I went to this acupuncture guy in LA and he did all this crazy shit and it got me through the show. <laughs> you know? So anything shoulder related is going to be, you know, one of the uh, worst things we can deal with next to probably something dealing with your hands or wrist, you know? Yeah. Can, can doing weights, um, affect your flexibility as a drummer? I think that's largely a myth. Uh, I say no. I say that, I've only had good luck and, and, and maximum benefits from weight training through the years. Uh, I say that certain exercises you do at the gym increase flexibility because you're, you're depending on the, the kind of range of motion that you use when you're lifting and, and this kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I, I think Back in the old days, like when weight training first became in vogue in the 60s and 70s, the perception was, oh, you're going to lift weights and get big and bulky, and it's going to slow you down. And that's kind of like been a prevailing myth that that, that everybody uh, has perpetuated. But when you look at virtually any world-class athlete, many of whom rely on flexibility and speed and all of that, 
golfers, basketball players, baseball players. I mean, you can't think of, you can't find a sport, you know, fighters, you know, mm-hmm. everybody lifts. Virtually everybody does some lifting and they may do different styles. They may not, they may not go quite as heavy as some other guys, depending on what you're, if you're trying to get more power and speed or if you're trying to bulk up or whatever, of course, but weight training in general, man, done the right way and you know integrating some stretching and this kind of thing man it, it, it's uh i've had nothing but great results i still obviously you know, train regularly to this day to do what i do and i've managed to be injury free and uh i feel like i'm 30 fucking years old still man so i'll, I'll, I'll keep on going until i can't <laughs> yeah are there, have there been a lot of musicians over the years that have sought advice from you about fitness and nutrition constantly <laughs> okay yes yes there has yep okay. both you know the diet and nutrition wise training wise all those things sure I, I love talking about it i'm happy to uh advise or, or, or counsel or whatever any way that I can uh musicians are, are tough because it's you know it, i always talk about you know it's got to be a lifestyle decision i don't really advocate diets because diet is something that you go on but then inevitably you get off you know so you want in any, uh, what I recommend is just try to do little changes that you can do forever. So they become part of a, this lifestyle thing, uh, and become second nature instead of, again, that's more of a short lived type thing. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's a tough life. I mean, a tour musician, man, it's, I mean, just the lack of sleep and the crazy scheduling and climate changes and all the things you're exposed to. I mean, it, it's, it can be very, uh, very tough, man. Very tough on the body. So that's why I think it's all the more important, especially yeah. if you want to do this on the long term. You know, to uh, be cognizant of at least a few things you can do. Make sure you get plenty of water and all the other logical things. You know. Yeah, I, I don't know when exactly you became a vegan, Bobby, but maybe back then it was probably more difficult to keep to that diet than it is now. Man, I'll tell you, uh, I jumped on the veggie path back in, in 91. So I was vegetarian for the first two years, meaning that I would still have some dairy and eggs. But then in 93 is when I went total vegan, which is, you know, uh, zero animal products. So even back then, early 90s, man, I'll tell you, you go on the road and you're, you're off in the Midwest someplace or something. And, you know, in, in Iowa or Kansas or something like that. And man, it was hell. I mean, you know, most towns would have like one little hippie type of, you know, uh, uh, health food store or something, but you couldn't just go into any grocery store and, and find, you know, soy milk or find uh, this kind of shit, you know, some, yeah. something, some, something vegan. But man, now any town, anywhere in the country, any major grocery store, you're going to find stuff, man. You know, these Walmarts that have those grocery store things that actually have a pretty damn good selection of stuff. And they're everywhere, man. And they're pretty much, it's hard to go into a big grocery store in any city in the country now and not find at least some token section, <laughs> you know, that has some of that kind of stuff, you know. And for restaurants and all that, you know, the key is, I think, you know, ethnic restaurants, you know, Mexican, Italian, Chinese, these places are going to be your best bet. To find it, and of course, we you know those kind of places are all over the place as well. So it's it's definitely a whole nother world these days. Yeah. Now, Bobby, before I leave you go, um, do you want to give all, out all the social media sites where people can get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, well, website, of course, is bobbyrock.com. We have links on there, and then on 
on uh, Facebook. Uh, I think it's Bobby Rock World. Between Facebook and Instagram, that's either Bobby Rock World or Bobby Rock Live. One of those two, I think, will get you in. Okay. all the socials there, you know? Yeah. Well, I have to say that the book was great. Oh, I really, cool, bro. I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, thanks for agreeing to do this. You as well, man. Great interview, by the way. Thank uh, you. Excellent questions, and it's great. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, and if I see you out out on the road, I'll hopefully get a chance to say hello to you in person. Hit me up, man. Hit me, catch me an email uh, in advance. Let me know you're going to be out that way. Where where is your home base right now? You say just Just, outside of Boston. Just outside of Boston. Just outside. Actually, uh, you know Gary Hoey. Yeah, of course. Yeah, his uh, his sister works about five minutes from where I'm living. Oh shit! We played with Gary for like five years. Yeah. Uh, I played with Gary from like '99 to 2005, or, or 2000, you know, the first first half of the decade. There, yeah. love Gary, man. And he played. Didn't he jam with us that night? He did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And ho- next time I see you, Bobby, hopefully my son will be awake. Yeah, that's that's just crazy, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'll leave you go. Have a good rest of the night. Right on, brother. All right. Thanks cool, for the interview. Let me know what, uh, yeah, drop me a line when this thing posts, and I'll, uh, I'll post it on all my shit. I will. All right. Take care of yourself. Cool, brother. Right. Later. Bye. Hey, Headbangers. This is Rudy Sarzo, and you're feeling the noise on Focus on Metal. Hey, Gary. Hi, Rudy. Hey, Richard. Hey, Richard. Good to be with you. Yeah, you've um, you've done a lot of interviews this morning. <laughs> That's all the fun of it. Yeah, so are you guys in Rhode Island at the moment? No, we're in New York City. Okay, okay, because I'm, ha- I'm about half an hour from where you're playing tomorrow night. Oh, great. Are you, are you, will you be there? Or? I'm going to try, but I can't guarantee I can make it. Oh. <laughs> so well, I'm obviously on here to talk about uh, the future is what used to be. That's out today. But Rudy, you have two records out today. Uh, yeah, but I'd rather concentrate on yeah, I know. talking about yeah. Yeah, I've already spoken to Craig about the other one. Oh, very yeah. cool. So, so Gary, first question is to you. Um, did the band ever attempt to make a, a record up up until this one? Because it's been a long time since you recorded one. Yes, we had. Um, I think it was in the in the nineties. We did an album called Lonely One, and um, really was more of a, a self gratification album just just because we we didn't uh you know we had no outlet creative outlet and and that really didn't do very much so this is the first album that we really concentrated on from beginning to the end and also to create the album in 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 the way we wanted to and to create the packaging like we wanted to take people back to that magic era of of pop music where we had all our success with our hit records. Yes. So, Gary, what changed to make the time right now to do it? I think it, it was it, it took us this long to uh, to get the right group of people together, talent wise and and music writing, you know, songwriting wise, and also. I had I had to learn to become a rock drummer, so <laughs> it took me this long. No, it just seemed right for us to do this. Now the last piece was um, Rudy coming into the band, which is very important. Uh, you know, bass player and a drummer 
are a real strong connection in and very important in a rock band. And um with our original bass player retiring, it just it seemed like this was the moment for this. Yes. So Gary, what sort of research do you do on Rudy? Because his playing is a given, you know he's a great player, but there's like twenty two hours of the day you're gonna be off stage with him. Like do you talk to people about what he's like as a person and will he fit? Yes, I have said this in interviews before. He's a great bass player and even a better person. So that kind of tells you that. However, we had uh, Michael Devon also from Whitesnake play on the album, and both of them were subbing in the band during the time when Jim Cale was making his decision whether he would retire or not. And it, it came about that uh, we chose Rudy to to be being the new bass player of the band. So, Rudy, how many of the guys in the band did you know personally before joining? Uh, really, uh, my connection with me initially uh, being approached uh, was uh, Derek Sharp's wife, Sass Jordan, who I I know. And she's the one that recommended to Derek, the new bass player in the band. So, Gary, what was, what was the first song you wrote for the album? Because normally that sets the direction for it. Can you remember? Um, I, I think that uh, probably um, playing on the radio, we had recorded once already, um, giving it a, a more of an 80s sound, a uh, wall of sound kind of, and, and it was then re-recorded for the new album. And that's probably the first song. And the last song on the album, which is called A Long Day, which is the, the last cut, of the album, that that cut Jim Cale plays on. Okay, and and that that's probably one of the uh, between that song uh, and playing on the radio, and there's another song on the album that the, all three of those were written around the same time and 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 done around the same time. Running blind is the other one. We kind of had those first. And that was kind of a, a, a we had re- demoed those three songs first, and then kept them for the album. Okay, so Gary, do you think you would have recorded it if you had a because all the, a lot of the new albums are done now; they're done over the internet. But you went old school. If you had a, had to do it the other way, do you think you would have done the album at all? If we, if that was the only way to do it, I think we might have tried it because we believed in it so much, you know, once we got it all together. Uh, however, we were we were lucky enough to be able to go to Blackbird Studios in, in Nashville and record it on the same console, the Neve console that we recorded all of our hits on, and then also outboard gear and uh, Hofner bass like the Beatles used and Paul McCartney used. Uh, 1970s set of drums, you know, we kind of wanted a return to rock music. Okay. And, and all all the people that you can hear in the album, all the people that influenced us growing up, uh, the Beatles and the Stones and Elton John and, and uh, you know, uh, Van Morrison and, and all these, these people we listened to and, and who were idols for us, you get glimpses of that throughout the album because that's that's what made us want to play in a rock band. Yeah, so Rudy, question for you before I wrap up. Was there any songs from the Guess Who's past that they hadn't played for a while that you kind of said, look guys, can we can we play this again? 
Uh, <clears throat> well, right now we're playing four songs from the new record. But before the record was being released, we were, it was mostly from the uh, catalog. There's 17 hit songs. So our set list was we just basically cover everything. Okay, okay. I'm glad you're playing four new songs. I, I love bands that actually play the new material. Yeah, and you know the interesting thing, and I'll, I'll tell you this because because we were kind of shocked ourselves to learn that, you know, when we play the songs, the new ones, amongst those hits that have been played on radio for 50 years, some of them, you know, you kind of don't know what's going to happen, but a lot of people, they react the same to the new songs, and, and it, it's almost like they think that they're old songs by us. Okay. They, they react like they're part of the catalog. That's job done if you can if you can get that to go over like that. Well, that's what we wanted to do. We wanted the future is what it used to be, is is the theme and and the return to rock and roll and how we were and, and the way we were. That is what we try to get across. And if people are reading it like that, they're getting what we were doing on the album. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking to the two E, and uh, I hope the tour goes well and. Uh, the album's really good, by the way. I really like it, and it's out thank today. you very much. Thank you, Richard. Yeah, it's really right. important. That's important to us because we want to know that we're on the right track, at oh. least. Oh yeah. Well, well. Have a good rest of the day. It's been a pleasure talking to the two of you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Richard. Okay. Take care, Richard. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, there you have it. Richie's chat with Gary Peterson and Rudy Sarzo of, uh, of the Guess Who. And if you want to find out more information about the band, their tour dates, merch, any of that good stuff, then you can head over to theguesswho.com. And as I said before, if you want to get a hold of your own copy of the Boy is Gonna Rock, Bobby Rock's brand new book. You go to bobbyrock.com. And every copy of that book is autographed by Bobby. In fact, he also throws in a little personalized thank you note with every order as well. So uh, the guy's really going out of his way to try to uh, reach out to the fans and uh, do the best things possible. And uh, I think it's pretty cool the way he's handling it. So again, if you want that, go to bobbyrock.com. So that is it for this week. Not sure yet what is on the agenda for next week. I'm thinking right now that it's probably going to be a talk with David Reese. You guys might remember we've had David on the show before back in uh, 2017 when uh, Sainted Sinners put out their self-titled release. But also, you know, David's been involved back in the day with Accept and Bangalore Choir as well as Bonfire. And this year, he has put out his first solo album. It is called Resilient Heart. So as of right now, that is the plan for next week is to run the uh, the chat we had with David Reese. In the meantime, you can always head over to FocusOnMetal.net and there you will find our archive of... Uh, 395 some odd shows that you can download or stream 
And if you see an episode up there that you want to hear about and you don't have a link for it, you can shoot me an email over at scott at focusonmetal.net and I will see about making a link for that and hitting you back and telling you that it is available. Of course, you can always get a lot of those up on iTunes as well. And you can also uh, talk with Richie over on Facebook. Hit me up over on Twitter. But as far as this week goes, stick a fork in it. This puppy is indeed done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.